morning, good afternoon, or good evening, and welcome to Inside the Writer's Studio, the podcast where we talk with writers about their lives, their craft, their business, and their latest work. I'm your host, Charlie Lovett, and our podcast is sponsored by Bookmarks. Bookmarks is a literary nonprofit whose programs include the largest annual book festival in the Carolinas. Come visit Bookmarks at our community gathering space and nonprofit independent bookstore in downtown Winston-Salem, North Carolina. My guest today is the author of a fascinating history of one of Hollywood's most famous and infamous buildings, the Chateau Marmont on Sunset Boulevard. The book is called The Castle on Sunset, and the author is film critic and historian Sean Levy. Sean, welcome to Inside the Writer's Studio. Howdy, thanks. Before we dive into The Castle on Sunset, I'd love to talk just a little bit about movies. You've been a film critic for many years. You've written a number of books about film stars. In the digital streaming age, do you think there's still a future for big screen motion pictures? And if so, what does Hollywood need to do to stay relevant? Well, we're talking a few days after a movie opened with a billion dollars at the global (laughs) box office. So I, I think they're doing a good job of taking care of themselves. But on a more modest scale, I, I curate um, film series occasionally in Portland. And last night I showed a performance with Mick Jagger and James Fox, a 1970 sort of psychedelic film. And we had a packed house and we had at least one gentleman there who, you know, middle age, said this was his favorite movie and he hadn't seen it on the big screen since it had first come out. And he had seen it many times since, but it was such a treat for him to see it on a big screen with an audience. And I think that's the thing you don't get when you, you know, you have a remote control in your hand and you're sitting in your living room is that communal experience of of the waking dream in the dark. Yeah. Yeah. You and I are about, we're about the same age. And, you know, when we were kids, I, I imagine it was the same for you as it was for me. Film watching meant either what's playing at the local cinema, which did not have 18 screens, or maybe what you could catch on a Saturday afternoon or a late night, um, you know, TV channel. Now we have DVDs, we have streaming services, we have art houses and multiplexes. You know, on any given afternoon, I have a choice of about 100,000 films that I could watch. How do you think that changes the game in terms of of making and marketing new films, but also in terms of my ability to educate myself in film. Well, I remember coming up that I would read about a film for years before I would have a chance to see it, you know, an early Fellini movie, say, or, or, you know, even, even Hollywood films from the classic era. If you miss the one time that they were on the late, late, late show cut up, Hand and scanned and and with commercials in, mm-hmm. interspersed, then you wouldn't have a chance to see it for a couple of years. That's that's now sort of behind us. At the same time, there's a level of complacency. It's it's shocking to see what's not available on any streaming service. Yeah. Many 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 films. Um, again, I'm lucky. In Portland, Oregon, we've got uh, Movie Madness, which is a video store that's still thriving that has more than 80,000 titles on its shelves. Wow. There's no 80,000 titles on my Roku and that includes every streaming service you can get. Um, so the, the danger of thinking that we have everything is that in fact we don't. I, I read an article recently about, you know, young people being surprised that there were people who still had 
a DVD subscription to Netflix, as I do myself. And almost everything I order on my DVD subscription is, as you say, something that's not available on any screening service at all. Uh, yeah, there's, there's, um, you know, we, we do have great bounty, but even on Netflix, Amazon Prime, these, these sort of, you know, really invaluable services, they rotate the, the, the selections, you yeah, know, movies yeah. come and go and they never have everything. So, um, you know, your public library often has things that you can't see through streaming. If you're fortunate enough to live in a town that still has a thriving video store, um, and of course, you know, a, a true repertory cinema, um, yeah. not just one that's playing sort of the movies that were popular six months ago, but the ones that, you know, are, are, are classics and, and, and deserve to be seen in an audience. Do you remember the first movie you saw in a theater or the movie that made you want to pursue film as a career? Um, I'm told that the first movie I saw was Mary Poppins and that <laughs> I was so fascinated by the, the, the idea that you could walk around in this place and buy food and such that I, I my father claims he never saw the film. Um, <laughs> my father was crucial in my, in my key movie-going experience. When I was about 12, um, we saw Chinatown in the theater. It was a new movie at the time, Roman Polanski's Chinatown. And my father and I disagreed on it. I thought it was a great movie, and my father thought it was very cynical and, and cheap. And um, I was right. And, and he, he, <laughs> before he passed, he did confess that I was right. But that idea that like I could have my own opinion about something was really crucial in my development as, as a sort of consumer of art, whether it be literature or film. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I remember you talking about walking around the movie theater when you saw Mary Poppins. One of the first movies I went to see was The Sound of Music, and I was a huge fan of of the record. I had listened to it ad nauseum, uh, as my older brother, I'm sure, would tell you. And apparently my one comment in the whole you know, two-and-a-half-hour, three-hour film was I leaned over at one point and said, this is where they turn the record over. You know? So for those of our listeners who remember what a record is, that's uh, that was my earliest film-going experience. Um, so I have to admit... At the moment that the arc of the Castle on Sunset arrived at my house, my wife took one look at it, whisked it away. She's a gigantic fan of classic cinema and golden age of Hollywood, and, and she, she got to read it before I did. So to begin with, tell us what is Chateau Marmont? Chateau Marmont is a hotel on the eastern end of the Sunset Strip in West Hollywood. Um, if, you, if you know the sun, Sunset Boulevard at all, you go through old Hollywood, Vine Street, Highland, and you know the, the, the famous old Hollywood where the stars are on the sidewalk on Hollywood Boulevard. And you come to a point where Sunset Boulevard becomes very curvy and then leads to Beverly Hills. When those curves start, that's Chateau Marmont. Mm -hmm. For many years, it had a giant billboard of the Marlboro Man in front of it, and that was <laughs> that was very well known. And it's been um, sort of the Chelsea Hotel, the sort of naughty hotel of Hollywood, since the 1930s. Uh, it's a tiny hotel. It was built as an apartment house, so it doesn't have a lot of the public spaces that you normally associate with a luxury hotel favored by movie stars. And it has hosted people from... Gene Harlow to Lindsay Lohan, getting up to uh, mischief and, and, you know, the sorts of things that, that movie stars like to keep hidden behind private walls. <laughs> what, what first 
drew you to Chateau Marmont and, and when and why did you decide it would make a good subject for an entire book? Well, I've wanted to write a book about the Sunset Strip for a long time, and I'd sort of gathered string on that subject um, for oh, 20 years um, and never quite found the proper vehicle to tell that story. And then after my previous book, um, my agent and uh, various book editors and I kicked around ideas, and an editor at Doubleday said, what about Chateau Marmont? <laughs> and it was one of those moments where an entire book appeared in my head. Yeah. I knew exactly what this book would be like. I didn't know all the details. I didn't know all the history, of course. Um, my research taught me you know, tons, but right away I knew what the structure would be, and I could see how my Sunset Strip kind of uh, fascination could be worked into this larger narrative. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's you know when I when I started reading it, my, one of my first thoughts was, how has nobody written this book before? I mean, you must have been thrilled when you found out that like this was sort of uncharted territory. There was a book written by one of the hotel owners back in the eighties, um, and it's 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 pretty good. I mean, it, it, there I have a lot of quarrels with it, but because it was being written in the 80s and it was being written by the hotel owner, they had access to a lot of longtime employees and archives that were gone by the time I got around to it. So I did rely a little bit on that book called Life at the Marmont, but it's very dated and it's it's got issues. Yeah, Yeah. Would you read a short passage from the book for us? Sure. Um, you know, the most famous thing that happened at um, Chateau Marmont um, happened in 1982 was the death of John Belushi. And um, it's the sort of thing that happened. You know, people didn't die at Chateau Marmont often, but um, Belushi's, you know, uh, drug fueled lifestyle was not uncommon, particularly in the era of the 60s, 70s, and early 80s. Mm-hmm. Um, after Belushi died, um, Bob Woodward wrote a book about it, uh, about his life and death called Wired. And then there was an attempt by Hollywood to uh, make a film of, of Wired. And this, this passage is about that. Wired was a big enough hit to draw the attention of movie makers, although many in Hollywood were loath to touch the material. Veteran producer Edward S. Feldman managed to get the film made despite obstacles and even violence. Jim Belushi, John's brother, stormed into his office one day and trashed it, instructing the secretary to, quote, tell Feldman who did this. I would, she replied, but I don't know who you are, sir. (laughs) The film premiered at 1989's Cannes Film Festival to a reception of walkouts, catcalls, and boos. Much of the film was set at Chateau Marmont, which was explicitly named and shown in exterior shots several times early on. A mock-up of a bungalow stood in for Belushi's rooms and was the primary set for the final third or so of the story. Woodward, who was written into the script as a kind of observer hero, walking through Belushi's final days with him like an impartial guardian angel, told reporters that he found the film, quote, exceptional. It deals with the themes with utter clarity. But critics and audiences agreed with the Cannes crowd. The picture died, grossing barely $1 million. 
You say something at the very beginning of this book that I think resonates not only throughout the story that you tell, but through many other books that I've read about California history. And I'm quoting from your book right now. You say, the history of California is the history of people reaching for the impossible and often actually stretching far enough to grasp it. How do you think the history of Chateau Marmont serves as a microcosm for the history of California? Well, it was a completely daft enterprise. Um, when uh, Fred Horowitz, the guy who had the idea to build the hotel, set about doing this, Sunset Strip was an unpaved road. It was a bridle trail between the Los Angeles city limits and the Beverly Hills city limits. And he built a luxury apartment house of 43 units with double double thick cement walls so it would be earthquake-proof. Um, you know, in an onion field off of an unpaved road. Um, so that that's kind of crazy. And he had the very poor luck to, to finish construction in 1929, just a few months before the stock market crash. So he could only hold on to the property for a year or two before he had to sell it. The fellow who bought it from him was one of the inventors of the movies, Al- Albert E. Smith, who founded Vitagraph Pictures, which was arrival of Thomas Edison back in the 1890s. And he turned it into a hotel thinking that people would want to stay there during the 1932 Olympics. So again, it's, you know, the history is connected to some sort of fantastical event. You know, as we know, things that get built for the the Olympics wind up often being disused six or eight years down the line because, you know, crowds don't come to see empty stadia. Um, And then the various people who owned it had some relation to the movie business or to speculation in in land. Even the current owners, and and today Chateau Marmont is more chic and luxurious and expensive than it's ever been. Even even the fellow who owns it now, it was his first entry into the hotel business and, you know, a complete leap of, of faith and speculation. So it's always had that sort of you know, um, walking on a tightrope sort of vibe to the place. Yeah, yeah. Is there anything else, like, that that we can compare Chateau Marmont to? I mean, I can't think of anything in Los Angeles. Is there anything anywhere else where you've got this same kind of, uh, you know, small place that goes through the ups and downs of its its neighborhood, of its business, of its local economy? I mean, is it unique? I mean, you know, there are places like it. I think, of course, of the Chelsea Hotel in, in, in Lower Manhattan, where, you know, it was even an arts colony, literally, at one point, and, you know, had a great history of hosting um, people from Eugene O'Neill to Sid Vicious, you know, so there, there's, there's, and there's several books about the Chelsea. Um, and I think of places like you know, Harry's Bar in Venice or, or McSorley's Ale House in Manhattan, you know, or, or, you know, parts of North Beach in San Francisco, places where bohemian life has gone on for generations and new people come because of the history of the place. So, you know, there are, there are select places, um, you know, certain cafes in Paris, um, certain pubs in the Soho section of London mm-hmm. that have always been the place where artists and bohemians and, you know, shady characters have congregated. 
I, I was really struck, and you mentioned this a minute ago, by the fact that when when Chateau Marmont was built, Sunset Boulevard wasn't completely paved. Um, my wife and I were in L.A. Uh, about a month ago, right after she had read the Ark, and we had a fairly busy schedule. We were just there for a few days, but she's like, we got to drive by Chateau Marmont. And I'm driving down Sunset Boulevard thinking, looking at that building and thinking, what was this like when I was on a dirt road? You, you said it opened in 1929, and as you mentioned, not an auspicious time to start a new business. But to give us a sense of the span of both of the hotel and of your book, could, could you just pick an anecdote from really early in the story and then tell us another anecdote from much more recently so we can kind of get a sense of that scope? Well, you know, at the time it opened, um, Hollywood – there were there were plenty of scandals going around, but the movie studios had a monopoly on information of a sort that they no longer have. So in the 1930s, Gene Harlow, um, the reigning sex pot of, of the cinema, um, moved into Chateau Marmont with her third husband. She was about 23 years old. She was divorced and widowed already, and she was running around with married men. So the studio fixed her up with a cinematographer who'd never been married before. And they took two suites at Chateau Marmont and combined them into one big apartment. And it became clear to staff right away that Harlow and Harold Rawson, her new husband, were not sharing a bed. When he was in town, he was a cinematographer. He was often on location. Um, he would sleep on a couch. She would sleep in the master bedroom. And it also became clear to staff that on nights when Rawson wasn't in the hotel, Harlow was entertaining male guests overnight. Um, and that went on for several months, and the marriage didn't last, and they both moved out, and they went on with their lives. Um, and nothing made it into the press. Even, even when she was sleeping with Clark Gable virtually on her honeymoon, <laughs> nobody knew about it. Today, I, um, Lindsay Lohan, the other the other end of the spectrum, um, in 2012, she was thrown out of Chateau Marmont because she ran up a fifty thousand dollar bill in about six weeks, and didn't offer any plan to pay for it. She she thought the production company of the movie she was making was going to pay for it, and they had no such plans. And the hotel sent her uh, like a nine paged itemized bill and a letter asking her to leave. And within weeks, that entire document had leaked onto the TMZ website. Mm -hmm. And suddenly we knew everything about what Lindsay Lohan was up to at this hotel. So on the one hand, you had the golden age where the movie studios could hide, you know, something really, you know, kind of shocking. Someone, someone taking lovers during their honeymoon. And on the other, you have somebody just owing not even not even a great sum of money in the scheme of Hollywood, fifty thousand um, dollars. That's like one day's craft service budget on you know on you know a, a, a Avengers Endgame, and um, you know that's everywhere and, and becomes a scandal all over the world. So you know you, there there you have it the two the two the two extremes. Yeah. Yeah. You've written before this book, you've written biographies of people, but this in many ways is the biography of an institution. How did writing this book compare with writing a traditional, for want of a better word, a traditional human biography? Well, that, that was that was the single hardest sort of structural thing to figure out. Um, you know, I've written about 
Frank Sinatra, Jerry Lewis, Paul Newman. These people were born, live, and die. And so you have a natural beginning, middle, and end. Yeah. Um, this story, you know, has ups and downs, but as I say, the hotel is more popular and more um, deluxe today than it has ever been in its history. So I had to figure out, well, how does that work and, and how do you divide a book? You know, you can't just tell one long story. So um, after some months of research, it dawned on me that the owners of the hotel formed chapters. So you had the builder of the hotel, Fred Horowitz. You had Alfred Smith, who turned it from an apartment house into a hotel and brought the movie people in because of his connections to the movie world. You had Erwin Brettauer, a man who was forgotten to history entirely. Even the previous history of the hotel had gotten his name wrong and had no details of his life. And he is the guy who integrated the hotel, built the swimming pool, built the last cottages on the property, um, really kept it alive for, for more than 20 years. Uh, you had a period of neglect and decay after Brett Tower. Then you had the people who rescued the hotel, uh, a man named Ray Sarlock and his business partner. And they didn't really restore it, but they kept it from being demolished in the 70s and 80s. And then you have the contemporary owner, Andre Balaj, who turned it into something very chic and deluxe and has very ingeniously given it a, a, a patina of old Hollywood charm that it really didn't have back in the day. It was a bit of a, it was seedy, you know, which was one of its charms for certain people. In, in its heyday, it was actually not a deluxe hotel. And it is today, and it looks like it was once a, a deluxe hotel. It's, it's, it's a great, great act of prestidigitation. So that was how I, I figured out how to tell the story of the life of a building, yeah. was through the way different owners had, had sort of um, shepherded it. It seems to me that a, a luxury hotel that pretends to be you know, an old luxury hotel, but is actually just the transformation of something that was quite seedy for a while, is the ultimate Hollywood story. I mean, that, that, that's, the, that's the facade that is Hollywood. Yeah, it's a, it's a little bit like when Quentin Tarantino discovers an actor who was in, you know, B-movies in the 60s or 70s and turns him back into a star, you know, um, the, the, the reclamation story. And, and uh, Chateau Marmont became chic in the 1980s without quite being, you know, restored during a time when several old Hollywood institutions were suddenly... Um, venerated by the young Hollywood crowd. Um, Musso and Frank's Grill on Hollywood Boulevard, which is the oldest restaurant in Hollywood. The Formosa Cafe on Santa Monica Boulevard, which was a Chinese restaurant and, and sort of dive bar just outside the Warner Hollywood Studios. So there, there was this moment where it's like, oh, that's still there. That's cool. Let's go drink there. That'll be fun. Cantor's Deli on Fairfax. There were there were a bunch of places that were being quote unquote rediscovered that had never gone away, but had definitely fallen into disuse. Chateau Marmont, you know, you you said it starts as an apartment building, but for most of its life, it's been a hotel, and yet it's been so much more than a hotel. And one of the things that struck me is how much show business business and work has been conducted there. Can you give us a, a few examples of the creative output that has come from Chateau Marmont? 
Sure. Um, you know, it was it was relatively cheap for a long time, which made it a great place for writers. <laughs> you know, the, the people who they'll tell you on Oscar night are the most important people in the production and, of course, are like uh, among the people whose names you would associate with a movie, usually the lowest paid. Um, and, you know, it, it was a quiet place. It was built to be earthquake proof, which meant it was also very um, soundproof. And it was also... Um, because it was built as an apartment house, you had your own kitchenette and private entrance. Um, you didn't have to go through a hotel lobby. The place didn't even have a liquor license till 1992. Um, so it was it was you know favored by people like Gore Vidal, John Cheever, um, Meredith Wilson, William Goldman, Dominic Dunn. You know writers from all different eras who who could get serious work done in there. But because it was inexpensive and sort of self-enclosed, there were people who literally made it their home away from home. Tony Randall, the actor, during all the years he made um, The Odd Couple, was a resident of New York. But when he came to L.A. to shoot 22, 24-week seasons of The Odd Couple, would rent a bungalow at Chateau Marmont for the duration. Because it was easier than renting a home, and, you know, having to provide a maid or you know, deal with the upkeep of a place. Instead, you were in a hotel. If a light bulb went out, you just rang the front desk. Um, Nicholas Ray, one of the most important chapters in the, in the book and in the history of the hotel, is, is his tenure there. He was a film director, of course, and his most famous film is Rebel Without a Cause. Nicholas Ray lived there for eight years. It was his home, uh, a bungalow at a hotel and during that time, he wrote, cast, rehearsed, and shot and, and edited Rebel Without a Cause. And he carried on socially and sexually with several of his stars. Um, you know, so, so it was the kind of place where you could really, you know, hunker down and, and set up, you know, set up house for, for months, if not years. Yeah. It's not that way anymore. It's far too expensive. But you know, for a long time, it was that sort of place. You write about the stars and the celebrities, and we've talked about a lot of those, but you also mentioned the desk clerks and the maids and the parking valets and the waiters. It strikes me that these are the very people who make not just a place like Chateau Marmont, but a place like Hollywood possible. Can you talk a little bit about how you incorporate the staff into your story? Sure. You know, if I think of the, the hotel sort of as, as, as a person I'm writing a biography of, then the people who work in the hotel, from the owners down to the, you know, desk staff and general managers and, and then the parking valets who, you know, in many ways are the first people you meet when you come to the hotel, um, they're sort of the blood of the place. You know, it doesn't exist without the work they do. And of course, if it's a hotel that values the secrecy and privacy of its guests, they're the, they're the gatekeepers. They're the ones who clean up the mess, who help you out of your car when you're showing up maybe in a condition in which you shouldn't be driving. <laughs> so, um, you know, getting their stories into it, you know, the general managers, the, uh, the first general manager of the hotel was a former film star named Anne Little. The most recent general manager I write about is a fellow named Phil Pavel, who was also, he came to Hollywood wanting to be an actor, then he wound up being a waiter to support his acting, and then he found out that hospitality was his calling, and ironically, because he was at Chateau Marmont for so long, people offered him film roles 
because, you know, he was a tall, handsome guy and they thought, hey, it would be funny to have him in the movie. Um, so, you know, you, you don't have a hotel or any uh, other business without these sort of day-to-day workers. And in a way, the, 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 the book has sort of a, a feel like Downton Abbey. There's a downstairs cast of the employees and an upstairs cast of the royals, which in this case is the celebrities and hotel guests. In, in some ways, you say that now Chateau Marmont is sort of selling itself as a luxury hotel, but but in many ways, it's about as far from a luxury hotel as you can get, and certainly was. You know, there's no spa, there's no big fancy restaurant. Uh, how do how do you think the lack of amenities actually added to its attraction over the years? Well, actually, today it does have some of these things. There are two restaurants and a bar there now. Um, they turned um, an upstairs attic into a gym. Um, I believe. Whoopsie. I believe there are spa services available, um, but it's not like uh, you, you go to other hotels and. You, know, you you enter into a grand lobby and you are greeted by desk staff and you drive up a big driveway and there are a lot of public areas that are a little sensitive to walk through if you're, say, Montgomery Cliff recovering from a car accident or Roman Polanski hiding from the paparazzi while your your trial is uh, for you know raping a child is going on. Chateau Marmont was a place where those guys could could come and keep a low profile. And the fact that there wasn't a restaurant or a bar for the first 60-odd years of its existence meant that people weren't hanging around, you know, ogling you. Um, The fact that you could, if you were renting a bungalow, enter through a back gate and not be in the big hotel building at all meant you could have an extra layer of privacy. So John Belushi, who died in, in a bungalow, you know, the people at the front desk didn't know whether he was there or not in his room unless he was calling for, you know, somebody to come clean up a mess. He, you know, it was it was that private a place, again, built as an apartment building. And, you know, very few apartment buildings have a restaurant or a grand foyer that you walk through. You just have, you know, the, there might be a bell, uh, 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 you know, a doormat. And that's what the place was like. So it really... You know, for people who were visiting L.A. from New York or Europe, it felt very familiar, like an apartment building of the sort that most people in Los Angeles don't live in. I, I was I thought about this. Uh, you know, I read this book and then shortly afterwards we had this fire at Notre Dame Cathedral and we had this renewed sort of cultural discussion about historic buildings and the history of buildings. And I thought about the fact that many of these what we think of as the most famous and beloved structures of our society are in the hands of these grand institutions like governments or the Catholic Church or things like that. But as you said, Chateau Marmont has always been under the control of a very small number of private individuals. How do you think that has both ensured its survival and threatened its survival at the same time? Um, you know, the, the original owners, I think, understood it as an asset. Uh, the fellow who built it, the fellow who turned it into a hotel, the fellow who expanded it, the first three owners. Um, after 1963 or so, it fell into the hands of investors, and it went through three or four investment groups for about 12, 15 years, and that's when it became really seedy. Um, it was never a flop house. 
but the room rates were very cheap. If something broke, it stayed broken. There's a wonderful quote in the book from Eve Babbitts, the uh, Hollywood uh, novelist and, and you know journalist. And she said, if something was off-white at the Chateau, it was because it was white to begin with. You know, and, and there were carpet stains that, that, you know, were older than some of the bellhops, um, you know, and, and it, it wasn't being taken care of. And, and it, it took a guy, uh, a builder bought the place in 1975, Ray, Ray Sarlat, and he's kind of a hero. This guy was a builder. If I had to bet money, I would have bet he bought it because of the property it sat on and not because of the building. His previous work had all been like housing developments. Um, and it happened that he was going through a divorce at the time he bought the building. So he moved in. And when he moved in, he fell in love with it. Mm. And he decided to keep it alive and restore it rather than tear it down and turn it into a new apartment house uh, that was more efficient or more modern. And the current owner is similar. He bought it at a time, uh, Andre Balaj bought the hotel in 1992 or so, at a time when the Sunset Strip was quite run down and undervalued. Um, West Hollywood didn't really know what to do to promote the Sunset Strip as a, a destination or a place to hang out. And Balaj got a good deal on the hotel, and he gradually restored it and, and you know, uh, uh, polished it into something much grander than it had ever been. But I think if, if Sarlat and Balaj had been answering to um, shareholders, they would have made different decisions. Instead, they were able to respond to their individual vision and their passion for the hotel. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Your, your book, we've, got a, we've gotten a taste of this already, but your book is filled with, with delicious uh, rumor and scandal and secrets. How do you go about researching a book when so much of it is about things that people don't want you to know? Well... You'd be surprised how often, you know, I've written books about Paul Newman, Frank Sinatra, and, and Robert De Niro, who are all supposed to be famously reclusive, and they're not. You know, they've given, they've each given thousands of interviews. Um, and, you know, in many cases, they, they've talked to journalists, and the journalists have been writing for outlets like, I don't know, the New York Times or, or Life magazine. And there are things that they couldn't include in their articles that they're happy to share with someone, you know, in a one-on-one interview later on. So I've spoken to people who've written about Chateau or people who've written about people who lived or died or had important um, events befall them at the hotel. Um, I did speak to some staffers, some from long ago, some from more recent years, you know, and, and After John Belushi's death, it went from a place that was filled with secrets to a place where everyone wants to know what's going on there. So even though it's meant to be a secretive place, the secrets kind of leak out. And sometimes just the fact that someone is staying at Chateau Marmont is mentioned in an interview with them or an article about them in such a way that, you know, it would hit my ear and then I would do a little more digging and find out, oh, and at the time they were living there, they were going through a divorce or they were drying out from a, a bender or, or something along those lines. And you're able to sort of, you know, 
particularly with modern research tools, you're, you're able to, to, to go several layers deep before you, before you know it. What advice would you give to listeners of ours who want to pay a visit to Chateau Marmont? Boy, save your money because it's <laughs> darned expensive. I think the cheapest room in the place is about 600 bucks a night now. Mm. And the bungalows are about 6,000 bucks a night. Um, but you know, uh, take time to appreciate the fact that what you're surrounded by, you know, may look like hustle and bustle, but it was originally, you know, avocado groves and, and poinsettia fields. It was built in a garden and it was empty all around you. Um, there were, there were no other high rises, in sight um, for at least a few years when, when Fred Horowitz built that building. And take time to realize that, you know, it, the building looked exotic in 1932 when it was first a hotel. Um, it was meant to resemble the Chateau d'Ambois in the Loire Valley of France, and it still has a, a sort of gothic feel to it. Um, I think that adds to the timelessness and the sort of mystique of the place. Um, and realize also, you know, this book has an oversized history of a, of a place that has an oversized aura, but it's a hotel with 63 rooms today. There are more than 63 rooms on, on a single floor of the MGM Grand in Las Vegas. You know, it's, it's a tiny place, and yet it has this outsized history. Yeah. Have you gotten any reaction about the book from the current management of the hotel? Um, they were upset, I think, when they first heard about it. They, I, I approached them several times when I was starting my work and never heard back from them. Um, and then I had to do my work. I had to spend less time chasing after them and more time doing my actual work. Um I think I've written a love letter to their hotel, and if they ever had any trouble booking rooms, I think this 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 book will put it you know those behind them because who wouldn't want to stay in a place where all this stuff had gone gone on? Um, so I think that once they you know if they haven't seen the book yet, once they do, they're going to realize that this is this is the book that they would have written about their hotel if they were if they were writers. I mean, it strikes me as if I were staying at that hotel, this is the book I would expect to find on the on the nightstand rather than the Gideon's Bible. You know? Yeah, yeah. You know, this is this is I mean, it, it's value added. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You've you've written about it's been nearly a century, about 90 years of of Chateau Marmont. What do you see as the future of this place if we look another 90 years down the road? Well, it's, it's, we know it's durable. It's survived a lot of earthquakes. Um, and uh, I think that the current ownership group is, is uh, they, they serve as excellent shepherds of this property. Um, they, they've restored it to a level of glamour and luxury that it has never enjoyed before, a, 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 a cachet and a notoriety that it has, you know, that have become assets. Um, so, you know, I, I can't say about 90 years, but certainly for the short run, another 20, 30 years, it feels like this hotel is, 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 you know, impeccably placed as, as one of the premier spots in the, in the firmament of Los Angeles hotels. Um, you know, uh, 
they, they, they've been kind of visionary. They, they took an undervalued um, ice, not a, not an eyesore, but but a seedy place, a place where you know celebrities would come down to the front desk with the shower knob in their hand and say, you know, this this happened, um, you know, and turned it into you know like a place where if you spend six hundred dollars a night, you 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 feel like well, yeah, that, that that's about what a place like this should cost. That's that's quite an achievement. Yeah. We like to end every episode of Inside the Writer's Studio with the same 10 questions. You should be able to answer each of them in just a few words, but hopefully they'll give us uh, they'll give us all something to think about in terms of writing and maybe the way that you approach things. So if you're ready, we will begin the speed round. Let's do it. What word do you love to work into your writing? Oregon. What word do you hate to encounter in other people's writing? Moist. Where is your favorite place to write? Tulum, Mexico. Where could you never write? My living room. To what rule of grammar do you pay least attention? The one that your sentence alludes to. (laughs) What was the first book you remember reading? Probably great pitching heroes of the major leagues or something like that. What are you reading now? I am reading the Book of Delights by the poet Ross Gay. What book would you like to have written? The Book of Uncommon Prayer by Brian Doyle. What sort of book would you like to write but probably never will? A great film noir novel. Hmm. And finally, what would you like to hear a reader tell you? I've been fortunate. I've been told several times by people sort of out of the blue, emails or people at at book events, uh, how much they enjoyed something that's not the book of the moment, something that I may have written 10 years or so earlier. And that's that's a real treat to, to have someone carry something around and I know in my experience, getting to meet the author of something that meant something to me 10, 20 years ago always gives me a lift. And to be on the receiving end of that has always been a treat. Yeah, yeah. This has been Inside the Writer Studio. I'm your host, Charlie Lovett, and the podcast is sponsored by Bookmarks, a literary nonprofit that runs the largest annual book festival in the Carolinas and operates a community gathering place and nonprofit independent bookstore in downtown Winston-Salem, North Carolina. To find out more about Bookmarks and all its programs, visit www.bookmarksnc.org. My guest today has been Sean Levy, whose book, The Castle on Sunset, is available wherever books are sold. Sean, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much. Inside the Writer Studio posts new episodes on the 1st and 15th of every month. On the next episode, I'll be in Oxford, England, talking to Sunday Times bestseller Kara Hunter about her new crime thriller, In the Dark. Until then, thanks for listening. And may you read with wonder and write with passion.